Um, let me say first, it's, a, it, it's an honor to be here, and it's, it's been one of the great professional delights that I've, I've been fortunate to have, to have a relationship with Encounter, uh, particularly because it's enabled me to do something that I think the, the, uh, the public debate has demanded but has not really supplied, which is an inquiry into the ideology of our enemies. Uh, Roger mentioned that in the aftermath of the Boston Marathon bombing, uh, there was serious public question about who could have done this in the, in the few days that went by that, uh, that we didn't know. Uh, and in around the same time that that went on, uh, it emerged that the, uh, the Pentagon, um, these were uh, actually members of, of the Army, were giving seminars on uh, the ideologies that threatened the United States. And they actually had developed lists of uh, organizations and institutions that uh, fueled what they call violent extremism in order to try to divorce the uh, projection of power <laughs> from the ideologies that, that fuel it. <laughs> and among the, uh, among the groups that made the list um, with Hamas and Hezbollah, which have been designated terrorist organizations for decades in the United States, uh, were <clears throat> Roman Catholics and evangelical Christians. Uh, and it was around that time that I was uh, being, making the rounds doing interviews about the, uh, about the Boston Marathon bombing. The, the uh, great thing about being a former terrorism prosecutor is what's bad for the country is always good for me. So uh, if things go boom and, and, um, uh, and, and bad things happen, I seem to uh, resurrect and, and make the rounds on these talking head uh, programs. But I did tell Lou Dobbs uh, at an interview that I, I sort of felt tempted uh, to confess to the Boston Marathon bombing on behalf of, uh, of both Roman Catholics and right-wing nuts everywhere, <laughs> since that seemed to be what the media was desperate to, to have. And of course, and the Irish, right. Um, well, the Irish at least might have been credible. Right? Um, uh, and of course, what it turned out to be was what should have been utterly predictable that it would be, which was a, a mass murder attack uh, in the mold of mass murder attacks that Al-Qaeda has actually been conducting for over a decade against American troops in Iraq and Afghanistan. But we were desperate uh, to, to try to find any possible answer except the most obvious answer. And that really does seem to be the approach that we've taken since 1993. Um, we were making the same sounds as a Justice Department uh, back in the days of the World Trade Center bombing uh, as the government makes today. Uh, and as a result, I've said probably every negative thing that you can say about using the criminal justice system as your main weapon against counterterrorism or your main response to counterterrorism. Um, let me tell you what the one really good thing about using the criminal justice system was. Uh, and that is that jurors are an integral part of our system because they, in theory, and I, and I think in, in practice, I was a practicing trial lawyer for 20 years, uh, bring the common sense of the community to uh, the issues of, of trials. 
And the, the interesting thing about a terrorism case or any serious allegation is that people will not convict peop uh, other people of serious crimes absent of showing not only of what, that they did what they are accused of, but also a coherent explanation of why they did what they were accused of. So no matter what they were saying on the steps of the courthouse or in the White House or at the Justice Department down in Washington about our enemies back in 1993, and the story then was as the story is now, that it was a fringe element that had nothing to do with Islam, very, very small, violent extremists. Um, you know the story because we've heard it for 20 years. In the four corners of the trial, in the courtroom, we had to prove not only what happened, but why it happened. And it became abundantly clear that the blind sheikh, who was our main defendant, Omar Abdel Rahman, um, if, if you thought about it for a second, and we had lots of time to think about it, he was completely incapable of doing anything that would be useful to a terrorist organization. Couldn't build a bomb, couldn't carry out an assassination, couldn't do a, a hijacking, couldn't do anything that you would think of that would be useful to terrorists, except lead the terrorist organization. Now, why was that? Why was somebody who was incapable of, of carrying out the fight, nevertheless somebody who was looked to for, as the, not an authority figure, the authority figure for jihadist organizations across the globe, such that bin Laden actually credited him with issuing the fatwa, which is the Islamic edict uh, that approved the 9-11 attacks from the prison cell that we had him in serving his, uh, his life sentence. Uh, and he's somebody who is still uh, agitated for by terrorist organizations in Egypt and elsewhere uh, for the United States to release him and return him back to Egypt. Uh, why is he a person of such prominence and such an authority figure in this movement? It is solely and only because of his mastery of the ideology of the enemy. The Blind Sheikh is a doctor of Islamic jurisprudence, graduated from Al-Azhar University in Egypt, which since the 10th century has been the seat of Sunni Islamic learning in the world. Uh, it, it's as close to uh, what Sunni Islam has to a Vatican. Uh, and if you are uh, a, a doctor of Islamic jurisprudence, graduated from there, you are a big deal uh, in the world of people who are adherent to Sharia, which is Islam's legal code, and I think uh, it, it, much more ambitiously, uh, Islam's framework for the perfect society. Uh, and the blind sheikh's influence over terrorist organizations, his ability to command people to commit acts of terrorism, was solely related to the fact that he was an authoritative master of the doctrine, the ideology, of our enemies. And yet, it's the ideology that has been the thing that we have most wanted to avoid grappling with since 1993. We had to grapple with it because we had to prove our case in court. And a couple of interesting things that came out of that. Uh, I uh, never got the opportunity to cross-examine the blind sheikh because he didn't take the stand. 
But the lead prosecutor in a big criminal case always has to be prepared to cross-examine the lead defendant. And they don't have to tell you until the end, we had a nine-month trial, uh, whether they are actually going to testify or not. Um, so we had to prepare for cross-examination. And I thought, if what we had been saying as a government were true, if he had been lying about the doctrine, if he had hijacked Islam and was, was promoting a false version of the doctrine, um, I, I wasn't dumb enough to think that a, a Bronx Irish Catholic could get into an Islamic theology uh, debate with somebody who graduated from Al-Azhar University. But I did think that if what we were saying as a government were true, there had to be two or three places that I could nail it, where I could say, you said this, but the scriptures say that. Well, it turns out the Blind Sheikh was a very prolific writer and speaker. We scrubbed his books. We scrubbed his many, many speeches that were uh, uh, audio taped and used as uh, recruiting devices at various mosques in not only the metropolitan area, but around the world. Every time he referred to the scriptures, he referred to them accurately. Now, you could make the argument that the scriptures said a lot of other things that he didn't include. I don't think that's a particularly compelling argument, knowing what I now know, because actually the most aggressive scriptures in the Quran come from the Medinan period, which is the last uh, period of the revelation. The, the tolerant, uh, seemingly ecumenical stuff, to the extent there is stuff like that in the Quran, comes in the early period. Most Quranic scholars will tell you the later abrogates the former. So the, the things that are in the more aggressive, provocative statutes actually supersede uh, the earlier, more tolerant ones. And I, I think a, a mainstream Quranic academic would, would uh, tell you precisely that. Um, but whether you buy that or not, the fact of the matter is what we were saying as a government was not true. He hadn't hijacked Islam, and he wasn't lying about what the scripture said. When he said the Quran says you must make war on non-Muslims, he wasn't kidding. Uh, and when he quoted it verbatim, he wasn't pulling that out of the sky. He was reading the actual scriptures. So I thought that was a very eye-opening part of it. The other really eye-opening part of it was we had a very long defense case in the trial. Um, the usual federal criminal trial probably lasts about two to three weeks. Um, we had a defense case that lasted about two and a half months. Our trial took about uh, nine months uh, in all. So during the defense case, a number of moderate Muslim people took the stand to give testimony that was favorable to the defendants. And when I say moderate, I don't mean faux moderates now. I mean actual, authentic, moderate people who would not in a million years, any more than anyone in this room, think of committing an act of violence to further any kind of agenda, ideological or, or, uh, or otherwise. Um, on at least three occasions during the defense case, while these folks took the stand, they would be asked questions about Islamic doctrine. You know, what is Sharia? What is Jihad? Uh, what, what do, how do you apply this particular Islamic principle to this situation? And on each of those occasions, they would say, I would not be competent to answer that question. To get the answer to that, you would have to ask someone like him. And they would point to the homicidal maniac in the <laughs> corner of my courtroom. And I thought it was, it was 
an amazing thing to see, especially given, again, what we were saying as a government about the threat against the United States, that you had these people who were ordinary, moderate people who knew very well what the blind shake, who he was, and what he was accused of, of having done, and yet they would take him as an authoritative source of what key elements of their belief system meant. Uh, I thought it was a powerful demonstration of his authority, not just over terrorist organizations, but the persuasive force of his academic accomplishments over even ordinary Muslim people who would not be involved uh, in, in terrorism uh, whatsoever. So I think as bad as the use of the criminal justice system as our main counterterrorism weapon during the 90s was in terms of the national security of the United States, the trials, and that one in particular, still stand as the most accurate record of the ideology of our enemies. The thing that I've, I've, uh, I've felt most privileged about in terms of my relationship with Encounter has been to be able to explore that ideology in a way that really we need more of in the, in the public debate and there, and there hasn't been nearly enough of. So uh, with Roger's encouragement, um, I, I wrote a book that was a memoir of the uh, of of what it was like to do these terrorism cases back in the in the 90s, and what it what it was like to try to confront a national security threat through due process protocols. That was willful blindness. Um, but I thought it was more important over time to really try to get down into what the ideology of our enemies is. And I've written two books for Encounter about that. One um, called The Grand Jihad. Um, the Grand Jihad was actually, the title of the book was taken from an internal memorandum of the Muslim Brotherhood that the FBI seized from a, a top Muslim Brotherhood operative in Virginia. And it was, the internal memorandum was written by top Muslim Brotherhood people in the United States to the headquarters of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt uh, to, to basically pronounce what the Muslim Brotherhood saw its role, its mission in the United States as. And in their own words, they described it as a grand jihad aimed at the elimination and destruction of Western civilization from within by sabotage. That's their own words. And that is their self-definition of what the Muslim Brotherhood front groups are actually doing in the United States. And it is an iteration here of the same ideology and the same approach that they use throughout the world, uh, and their tactics depend on the, the conditions that govern uh, at any one time in any, uh, in any given place. Uh, Spring Fever, which uh, th there are copies of it uh, around the table, was meant to grapple with, uh, with what's been called the Arab Spring, and this whole, what I think is an illusion that what the Arab Spring has been about is an outbreak of <coughs> anything that we would recognize as democracy. And I think it's telling that the, the book actually opens with a uh, quote from the man who is probably the most important Islamist pop politician on the planet now, and that is uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who is the prime minister 
of Turkey. And Erdogan, asked about democracy, says, democracy is like a train. We ride it to our destination, and when we reach our destination, we step off. And that really is the way Islamic supremacists think about democracy. The, the really dangerous thing about what's happened in the Arab Spring is the West and the Islamic world are using the same terms, but they don't mean the same things by them. So we're like ships passing in the night. When we think about democracy in the West, we don't think about procedures. We think of a culture of living that implies all sorts of things about uh, liberty, freedom of conscience, equality under the law, and the like. To Islamic supremacists who are now the key figures in the Arab Spring, democracy is a tool, just like terrorism is a tool, for the one thing that is uh, the unifying goal of all Islamic supremacists, and that is the implementation of Sharia. Sharia is deemed in our enemy's ideology to be the necessary precondition for Islamizing a society. It's not just law, it is a framework for society which in a very centralized, totalitarian way would govern every aspect of human life, not just the great things like military, economic, and uh, uh, social political affairs, but everything down to interpersonal relations and even matters of hygiene. Uh, and from an Islamic supremacist perspective, um, it really couldn't be any other way. In their belief system, they believe that Sharia is Allah's gift to mankind for how the perfect, ideal human life is to be lived. So they not only feel duty-bound to impose it, they take it as a deep affront when someone has been educated or, or called to it, informed about it, and then refuses to implement it. And that really, in the end, is what our struggle is about. Whether it's through jihad, whether it's through violent activity, or whether it's through lawfare and the tools that are available in Western political discourse and Western political procedure, what our enemies are trying to do is gradually impose Sharia. And their, their ambition, which sounds crazy to us at times, is nothing less than a global caliphate, where all of the world is brought under Islamic rule. That doesn't mean that everybody has to become a Muslim, at least not right away, but everybody has to submit to the authority of the Muslim state. Um, and if the blind sheikh were here, he would tell you that that's because that's precisely what the Quran says. And he'd be quite right about that. Um, there, there are two things that I want to uh, sum up with, one of which Roger uh, forecast. Uh, and that is the meeting that's going on down in, in uh, Tennessee tonight. But before I get to that, there's something that's very interesting that's going on in Turkey now. And Turkey is a major part of, uh, of spring fever. I, I point to Turkey because my argument in spring fever is that the phenomenon we call the Arab Spring has already happened. Uh, and it happened in Turkey. And what happened in Turkey was the Islamists came to rule. Uh, they were elected to power by a quirk of the Turkish political system, which is actually designed to keep them out of power. But the Turkish political system always assumed that the non-Islamists and the secularists would never crack 
to the point where they would let the Islamists get into power. Um, as it happened that the Islamists precisely did get into power in 2002. And what they've done in the ensuing decade is take a country that was reasonably democratic and pro-Western and turn it back into the Islamist camp. So that, for example, Turkey, which is one of our allies in NATO, unbelievably is the financial backbone and lifeline of the Hamas terrorist organization. So if you think about it, in the United States, if you provided material support to Hamas, that would be a serious felony that we could send you to jail for 30 years for. Um, and yet we have a NATO ally who we're, we're fundamentally relying on in carrying out American policy in the Middle East, whose main imperative at the moment seems to be the support of Hamas. Uh, so that's what, it's, that's what it's come to with, uh, with Turkey. But what happened when the Islamists got into control of this democratic government uh, was slowly but surely, uh, as Erdogan became more confident uh, over time, they removed all of the protections of a real democracy. So you no longer have a free press. You no longer had a, a, a uh, military that protected the secular order. Uh, political dissent basically doesn't exist until recently in Turkey because they round you up and they imprison you uh, basically uh, ad infinitum or until Erdogan decides that it's time for you to be released. It's basically be a, a democracy that's become gradually uh, an Islamic totalitarian state. It's not fully there yet, uh, but it will be there. And the reason that's important is if democracy was actually going to succeed in a Muslim society, it had a better shot in Turkey than any place else in the world. Because Turkey has always had one foot in the West and has always had a self-image, at least halfway, of a European orientation and a Western orientation. And when Ataturk uh, turned Turkey toward the West, it was precisely because he had made the decision that if, the, if, if Turkey was to flourish as a country, its future had to be with the West, not with being a, a, a Sharia state. Interestingly, his contemporary was Hassan al-Banna, who's the founder of the Muslim Brotherhood, who looked at the same world and made exactly the, the opposite conclusion, namely that what the world needed was more Islam, not, not less Islam. Uh, so you have this, uh, this tension that's gone on for uh, the better part of a century between uh, those two schools of thought. The reason that's all interesting is because what's happening in Turkey now, the revolt that's happening in Turkey, really is what the press pretended the Arab Spring was, which, was, which is a revolt against totalitarianism, against authoritarianism, against this Islamic suffocation of every vestige of liberty. Uh, and you actually have the secularists in Turkey uh, pushing back against Erdogan. Uh, it'll be interesting to see not only how this comes out, but how the press covers it. Because they covered the Arab Spring, which was actually an uprising and an ascendancy of Islamic supremacism, as if it were an eruption of real democracy. Now we're having what looks like an eruption of real democracy Let's see how they, how they deal with it. Uh, and the second thing I'll, I'll, I'll say, and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll stop with this, is that in Tennessee tonight, the United States attorney for uh, the district, uh, for the state, really, uh, who is the top Justice Department official in Tennessee, uh, along with the head of the FBI in Tennessee, is appearing at a town meeting 
which is organized by an Islamist organization, to discuss ways that free speech can be curbed under the federal civil rights statutes. It has been a policy of the Obama administration since the first days of the administration to join with the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, which is a 57 government uh, Islamic voting bloc at the United Nations, um, to help them achieve their top priority, which is to make free speech rights in the West accommodate Islamic blasphemy standards, which forbid any speech that casts Islam in a negative light. And Contrary to normal rules of libel, truth is not a defense. So if I were to get up and say or write uh, that, the command, that the Quran commands that Muslims make war on non-Muslims until they submit to the authority of the Islamic State, I could be charged with hate speech and it would not be a defense for me to get up and read the Quranic verses that say precisely that. Uh, so this is the world that they want us to live in, where basically uh, nobody is able to pronounce on the ideology of our enemies uh, other than uh, people who either want to sugarcoat it or who want to erase uh, any, any uh, vestige of what the real threat to us is. That meeting is going on in Tennessee tonight. Uh, it's the last stage of a project the Obama administration has been pushing for five years, which has included the passage of a United Nations resolution that would make it a crime or at least make it a civil wrong, illegal, um, to publish anything that, as they, as they put it, would incite hostility to religion. And there is, of course, only one religion that's on the table when we're talking about this. If they get their way, and it's been very clear from the beginning of this campaign that the design is to make it impossible to speak in a truthful manner that is in any way critical or illustrative of our enemy's ideology. If they get their way, books like Spring Fever will not be possible in the future. And I think even more threatening, if they establish the principle that free political dialogue can be curbed, that the First Amendment is no longer operative, uh, it, it won't just be the ideology of our enemies that will no longer be something that can be discussed freely in the United States. It will be any form of dissent. So it's something I think that we have to make uh, the place that, uh, that becomes the hill we're willing to die on. Uh, because if they get their way on this, uh, there's no longer a First Amendment. And if there's no longer a First Amendment, there's really no longer an America as we know it. Uh, so. I'm, I'm sure that was a laugh riot for everyone. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, but thank you for inviting me to say a few words. And